Someone once told me, or maybe I read it somewhere, that the first place Dave Matthews Band played in Chicago was at Shuba's in the Lakeview area of Chicago, easily one of my favorite music venues, which resides at the corner of Belmont and Southport and has a capacity of roughly 165. Back when Dave Matthews Band was reportedly first in town, I believe Shuba's still had booths on the sides of the room, which means capacity would have been even less. I bring this up because I later found out Shuba's was not Dave Matthews' first ever stop in Chicago, although he did eventually play there. More on that later. But it got me thinking about today's topic, Chicago Firsts. I'm Tommy Henry, host of the Chicago History Podcast. Today we're going to discuss a few Chicago firsts, those things, as the title suggests, Chicagoans can lay claim to achieving before anyone or anywhere else, as well as first events that took place here in the city. Look for new Chicago First short format episodes starting midweek where I talk with some special guests about their Chicago First stories. Many Chicagoans and history fans know that Cracker Jack, Snack Food, and the Ferris Wheel both had their debut at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. But according to Norman Bulletin and Christine Lang in their book The World's Columbian Exposition, the Chicago World's Fair of 1893, the first moving walkway also debuted at the big event in 1893. It was designed by architect Joseph Lyman Silsby, cost five cents to ride, about $1.42 in current day money, and had two different divisions, one where passengers were seated and one where riders could stand or walk. It ran in a loop down the length of a lakefront pier to a casino and could carry 6,000 people at a time, 31,680 people per hour, moving at a rate of six miles an hour. Due to delays in construction, it was not put into operation until July, at which point half the exposition was over. At the close of the exposition, the walkway had carried 997,785 people. Unfortunately, breakdowns were common for the movable sidewalk, which also affected the overall numbers. It was destroyed by fire in 1894. Marie Connolly Owens is thought to be not only the first policewoman in Chicago, but also the first known female officer in the United States. Take that, Los Angeles and Portland, two places that long claimed that distinction. Born in Bytown, later renamed Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, in 1853, the daughter of Irish Catholic famine immigrants, she moved to Chicago with her husband Thomas in her 20s. In February of 1888, Thomas died of typhoid fever, leaving Marie to raise their five children. She was hired in 1889 with the city health department, working as one of only five female factory inspectors who enforced child labor and compulsory education laws. During that time, public outrage was growing over the horrible sweatshop conditions in factories throughout Chicago. But the inspectors' powers were limited. They were not allowed to enter buildings without a warrant. As pressure increased toward public officials regarding enforcement of child labor laws, Owens was transferred to the police department in 1891. She was given the power to arrest the title of detective sergeant and a police star, number 97. In an op-ed piece in the Chicago Tribune in 1901, Owens wrote, 
The sights to be seen in the slums today can in no way compare with those of 10 years ago and the suffering due to the inability of the older members of the family to work is, indeed, pitiable. Children were found working in factories all over the city, the frail little things in many cases being under seven. The pittance of 75 cents or one dollar a week, however, helped to buy food for a sick mother, though it was at the cost of health and education. Owens told the Chicago Tribune in 1906, I like to do police work. It gives me a chance to help women and children who need help. Owens described how she had discovered children working in factories all over the city. Some assembly lines were staffed by scores of kids, many looking suspiciously younger than 14, the age at which children were legally allowed to work. In my 16 years of experience, I have come across more suffering than ever is seen by any man detective, she said. In 1923, she retired after 32 years with the department. Four years later, she died at age 74. At a time in music when Rod Stewart was playing at the Chicago Stadium, Cheap Trick was at the Riviera, Santana and Iggy Pop were booked at the Aragon on separate nights, and Dolly Parton was at the Auditorium Theater, Talking Heads, the, quote, highly acclaimed New York underground band, end quote, as they were referred to in the October 17th, 1977 Chicago Tribune, played two nights at Quiet Night on Belmont Avenue. For more about Quiet Night, check out episode two of this podcast. On uh, Monday, October 24th and Tuesday, October 25th, 1977, the first night Talking Heads played got off to a rough start as their equipment was delayed, resulting in a hurried sound check and a late start in front of a, quote, small but enthusiastic crowd. It was also written at the time that the press agent for Talking Heads said the band thought they had the potential to be as commercial and popular, quote, as the Carpenters, end quote. Sure, the Carpenters were one of the biggest-selling duos of the 70s, and who wouldn't want sister-brother act Karen and Richard's record sales of the time? But I have to imagine the members of Talking Heads were joking with the comparison. Almost 40 years before the beloved film version was released, L. Frank Baum's book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, published in 1900, was a musical first mounted at the Grand Opera House in Chicago on June 16, 1902. Baum, whose first love was the theater, began working in the summer of 1901 with Wizard of Oz illustrator W.W. Denslow and a 24-year-old composer named Paul Titians on plans for producing The Wizard of Oz for the stage. Baum wrote an operetta-style libretto, faithful to the original book. Titians began writing music to Baum's lyrics, and Denslow worked on designs and with his theater friends to find a producer. The project eventually made its way to Fred Hamlin, producer of the Grand Opera House. Legend has it Fred Hamlin agreed to stage the show because it had the word wizard in the title, and his family's fortune had been made with Hamlin's Wizard Oil, a cure-all medicinal tonic what we'd now likely call snake oil. The summer opening was a huge success, and the production made its way to Broadway in 1903. The Grand Opera House later became a movie theater before being demolished in 1958 and replaced by the Chicago Civic Center in 1965. 
The Chicago Civic Center was renamed the Richard J. Daley Center on December 27, 1976, seven days after the long-serving Chicago mayor's death while in office. Only a few years before a movie was made based on this musical, Grease was first produced on stage in February 1971 at the Kingston Mines Theater, 2356 North Lincoln Avenue, a former trolley barn, and an, quote, amateur theater with weak acoustics, end quote, as theater critic William Leonard wrote in the February 12, 1971 column in the Chicago Tribune. The musical cost less than $200 to produce, about $1,300 in present-day money, including the $70 paid for the 1951 Chrysler called Grease Lightning. One of the writers of the play, Jim Jacobs, based it on his experiences at William Taft High School in Chicago. Foster Avenue Beach on the city's north side was part of the story, as well as lots more four-letter words, dirty jokes, and adult themes that didn't make it into the somewhat sanitized 1978 Hollywood film version starring John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. Long believed to be the first skyscraper in Chicago and in the world, the Home Insurance Building started construction in March of 1884 and was completed in 1885. Major William LeBaron Jenny, yes, Major, he fought in the Civil War as an engineer on the Union side designing fortifications for both General Sherman and General Grant, returned from the Civil War and settled in Chicago, opening an architectural firm specializing in commercial buildings and urban planning. The Home Insurance Building, once located at LaSalle and Adams Streets, is most certainly the first tall building to be supported both inside and out by a fireproof structural steel and metal frame, which included reinforced concrete. So revolutionary was the design, city authorities halted construction so they could ensure its safety, as there was a concern it might fall over. It rose to 10 stories at 138 feet. Two additional floors were added in 1891. The Home Insurance Building was demolished, along with five other buildings, in 1931 to make room for the Field Building, also known as the LaSalle National Bank Building and later the Bank of America Building. George A. Fuller Company, which had built the Home Insurance Building in 1885, was also the general contractor for the Field Building. In 1932, the field building owners placed a plaque in the southwest corner of the lobby in the field building, which reads, This section of the field building is erected on the site of the home insurance building, which structure, designed and built in 1884 by the late William LeBaron Jenny, was the first high building to utilize as the basic principle of its design the method known as skeleton construction, and being a primal influence in the acceptance of this principle was the true father of the skyscraper, 1932. There's been some question over the years as to whether the home insurance building was truly the first skyscraper, as it appears buildings in New York and even in Chicago of the time were actually taller, but not constructed using a steel frame, which appears to be a key element. But until the architectural guys sort all this out, we're calling it as our own, first here in Chicago. Note future Chicago architects of great renown, such as Louis Sullivan, Daniel Roach, and Daniel Burnham, who would go on to design New York's Flatiron Building, studied under Major William LeBaron Jenny. Here's a guy with two great Chicago first stories that occurred on the same day. 
Starlin Castro, who on May 7, 2010, was a 20-year-old Dominican baseball player when he was called up to play in the majors with the Chicago Cubs from the Tennessee Smokies, a Chicago Cubs AA affiliate, making him the first major league player born in the 1990s. Carlin holds the Major League Baseball record, as of this posting, for the most runs batted in by a player in that game, his first, with six. Castro hit a three-run home run and a three-run triple against the Cincinnati Reds, helping catapult the Cubs to a 14-7 victory in December of 2015. He was traded to the New York Yankees. While we're on the subject of sports, the first football player in history to return the opening kickoff for a touchdown in a Super Bowl game. As watched by an estimated average of 93.2 million viewers, that was Devin Hester playing for the Chicago Bears in Super Bowl 41 against the Indianapolis Colts on February 4, 2007. The Bears went on to lose that game 29-17. Instead of dwelling on that loss, it is probably best to think of it as the Super Bowl with the greatest halftime show ever, that one being from Prince. 19-year-old Adele Lori Blue Adkins, more commonly known as the mononymous Adele, first played Chicago at a sold-out show on May 31st, 2008 at Martyrs on Lincoln Avenue. On the day before, the Chicago Sun-Times had an article about Adele with the headline, Adele wants to be more than a two-hit wonder. The Martyr Show was in front of 320 fans, generating around $4,800 in revenue. By January of 2009, she circled back to Chicago to play Park West in front of a 1,000 people. In May of 2011, in support of her second album, she performed at the Riviera Theater to a sold-out crowd of 2,500 people. In July of 2016, when Adele played three sold-out nights at the United Center in front of more than 20,000 fans per night, the revenue generated for those nights was $5,074,208. With more than 50 million albums sold worldwide and 20-plus hit songs, her quest to become more than a two-hit wonder has been realized. Long before we all had GPS in our phones, the Chicago Times-Herald newspaper is believed to have published the first printed automobile map on Thanksgiving Day, November 28, 1895. The Chicago Times-Herald race was the first automobile race to be held in the United States, sponsored by the newspaper publisher to promote the new motorized vehicle industry and, of course, sell newspapers. A simple map was included in that day's newspaper of the 54-mile course, which started in Jackson Park, close to where the Palace of Fine Arts at the World's Columbian Exposition was just two years earlier to Evanston, Illinois, in the northern suburbs, and back to Jackson Park. For those familiar with the area wondering how that turned into 54 miles, they reportedly zigzagged through neighborhoods on their way back. J. Frank Durier, a 26-year-old race car driver born in Washburn, Illinois, tore the map out of the newspaper and claims to have referred to it frequently as he drove to victory. A little more about that race for the gearheads out there, In typical Chicago fashion, it was 30 degrees that day with 6 inches of new snow and drifts of 24 inches. Of the 80 entrants that signed up, only 11 were ready by race day and just 6 vehicles arrived at the start line. Of those 6, only 2 entrants finished, the 2 electric cars could not keep up with the cold, and 2 others crashed in the snow. 
The Durier, built and driven by J. Frank Durier and the only American-made gas-powered car in the race, crossed the finish line first after 7 hours and 53 minutes of running time, 10 hours and 23 minutes total time, as there were many stops not only for repairs and gas, uh, but also a four-minute wait for a train. That is a Chicago thing for sure. Uh, They had an average speed of 5.05 miles per hour, 7 miles per hour while driving. The official distance was 54.36 miles and used 3.5 gallons of gas. Chicagoans who showed up to watch the race were said to be unimpressed by these new motorized vehicles. Chicagology.com, always fun to say, has a very detailed description of that race day's events. If you go just southwest of the Museum of Science and Industry, you can find a rock with a plaque commemorating the race. I'll have pictures of the 50th anniversary version of the map, the winning car with Durier, and the rock with the plaque on all Chicago History Podcast social media. I almost forgot. After digging through many, many sources, Dave Matthews Band was indeed scheduled to play at Shuba's on January 21st and 22nd, 1994, but those shows were canceled due to a death in Matthew's family back in his native South Africa. He did return to Shuba's in March of 1994 to play two sold-out nights. The first Chicago appearance that I could find appears to have been at the Cubby Bear across from Wrigley Field on September 14, 1993. Dave Matthews would play in Chicago many times after, including September 17th and 18th, 2010, at Wrigley Field with one performance, including a cover of the aforementioned Talking Heads' Burning Down the House. Matthews also acknowledged that he may have overindulged in some Wrigleyville entertainment the night before his show. Last night I stumbled around the streets of Chicago, he told the audience. If I saw you, I might not remember. The second night concert was released as live at Wrigley Field, with the entire two nights of concerts released as a special box set. I'll be posting pictures, ads, and stories that didn't make the cut on the Chicago History Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. Check those out. If you are looking for some additional reading selections on Chicago-related subjects, check out On This Day in Chicago History by John R. Schmidt. I have started interviewing people about their Chicago First stories, and will start posting some of those as short format episodes midweek. If you think you have an interesting Chicago First story, I'd love to hear about it. Out of Contact Me is coming up. Do you have memories of Talking Heads at Quiet Night, Dave Matthews at Cubby Bear, Sing Grease at Kingston Mines, or Adele at Martyrs? Feel I missed something or have additional questions about things discussed in this episode? Maybe you have a topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast. If so, send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Special thanks to Larry Leiter and Sarah Lamantia for their creative suggestions. Also, special thanks to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at angeleyesartjks on Instagram or via email at jschneider152 at gmail.com. As always, like, subscribe, and review this podcast, and share it with a friend. It helps us get the word out and reach new history fans. Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in, and stay safe. Thanks for listening.